Here at Ecclesia, we are distinguished as a church as being a church that preaches expositorially. What that means is that we teach through books of the Bible, and we teach verse by verse and chapter by chapter. In September, we finished going through the book of Ephesians, uh, and that took us probably, you know, the better part of 2020, I think, through, to get through Ephesians. Uh, and now we're going to get started in a new sermon series, which is probably going to take us through most of 2021, as we start a series looking at the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John is one of four New Testament books which are known as Gospels. And the Gospels are ancient historical biographies of the life of Jesus. And so for the next several months, we get a chance to take a look at the life of Jesus as we go through the Gospel of John. And this morning, I'm going to give you an introduction or an overview to the book of John. And then starting next week, Pastor Steve will start on chapter 1, verse 1, and he's going to start right at the very beginning of the book. But this morning, we're going to take a look at an introduction to the book of John. And we're going to do that by actually going to the very end of the book. So take your Bible and turn to John chapter 20, and this morning we're going to look at John chapter 20, verses 31 and 32, and then we're going to look at John chapter 21, verses 24 and 25. My wife uh, loves to read. She, she'll, she just reads a lot of books, and, and one of her favorite types of books to read is the mystery novel. But when my wife reads a mystery novel, she does something rather unusual. The first thing she does when she gets a new mystery novel is she goes to the very last chapter of the book and she looks to see who committed the crime before she even gets started with the book. So after she discovers who actually did it, then she goes to the front of the book and she'll read through the whole book. And I know that seems a little unusual, but if you ask her why, she says she wants to know who did it before she starts so that she doesn't get emotionally invested in the wrong characters and so that she knows what to pay attention to as she's going through the book. Well, that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to do the exact same thing. We're going to go to the end of the book of John, and we're going to see how it concludes. And in the process of doing that, we're going to know what it is that we should be paying attention to as in the coming months we go through this book chapter by chapter and verse by verse. So let's take a look at these four short verses at the end of the book of John. And we're going to pick it up in John 20, starting in verse 30. It says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you might have life in his name. Flip over a page to chapter 21 in the last two verses, verses 24 and 25. This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things, And we know that his testimony is true. Now, there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. When we look at these verses at the end of John, we we discover that John is telling us that he is not writing an exhaustive gospel. That is, he's not telling us everything that Jesus did. In fact, when we compare the Gospel of John, even to the other Gospels, there's a lot that John leaves out. In fact, John doesn't tell us anything about Jesus' birth. He doesn't tell us anything about Jesus' baptism. He doesn't tell us about Jesus being tempted in the wilderness. He he leaves out the important teachings, like John doesn't give us anything from the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, He doesn't give us any one of Jesus' parables. There's a lot that John leaves out of his Gospel. And I think there are two reasons why the author has not written an exhaustive biography. First of all, John was the last gospel to be written. 
by the time he writes his gospel, the other three biographies of Jesus are already in wide circulation. The gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke have all been in circulation for almost 25 years before John writes his gospel. Those gospels were written in the 50s and the 60s, not the 1950s and 1960s, but 80, 50, and 80, 60. And John is writing his in the late 80s and the early 90s. Now, because John is writing his book much later, it has a very different feel to it. It's a much more theologically developed book. Throughout the book, we're going to see commentary from John as he explains the theology behind what Jesus says and he does. Because he's writing it from the perspective of someone who's had almost half a century to think about all that Jesus did and said. In addition, the Gospel of John contains a lot of unique material not found in the other Gospels. In fact, 92% of what we will read in the Gospel of John is not found in Matthew, Mark, or Luke. Now, the second reason why I think that John has not written an exhaustive biography is because he has a very specific purpose for writing his Gospel. And we see that purpose in verse 31 of chapter 20. John chapter 20, verse 31 says, But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you might have life in his name. This is the purpose statement for the book of John. This is, this is the thesis statement. John has selected the stories and the teachings of Jesus for a specific reason. He wants you and I to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing in his name, we might find life. For John, the whole gospel is about belief. It's about belief. And belief is going to be a theme that we address again and again and again as we go through the Gospel of John in the coming months. He is going to be reminding us and calling us to believe in Jesus. So this morning, I want us to explore this idea or this topic of belief. I want us to explore and understand what John means when he says that we should believe in Jesus. And we're going to do this by asking four questions. The first question is, why should we believe? The second question is, what is belief? The third question is, what should we believe? And then the fourth and final question is, what do we gain by belief? So if you're a note taker, that's our outline for this morning. Write this down. Number one, why should we believe? Second of all, what is belief? Third, what should we believe? And finally, what do we gain by belief? John has written this book so that we might believe in Jesus. But the first question we have to ask is why? Why should we believe? What evidence is the author going to give us to get us to believe in Jesus? And the answer to that question is in the first part of John chapter 30. It says, now, John did many, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe. In verse 30, the author is telling us that he's not providing us with an exhaustive list of all the miracles and the signs and wonders that Jesus did. As a matter of fact, within the Gospel of John, there are only seven recorded miracles in John. We know that Jesus did a lot more than seven miracles because we see a lot of other miracles in other parts of the Bible. But John is only writing down these seven miracles in order to reveal Jesus' identity. He calls them a sign. So what does he mean when he says that these are signs? Well, just as a road sign points or, direction, or points or directs us to our destination, so these signs, these miracles of Jesus, point us and direct us towards a conclusion. 
In the, book of, in the book of John, Jesus does these seven supernatural miracles for a point so that we would know who Jesus is. The first sign is found in John chapter 2. In John chapter 2, Jesus is attending a wedding in the city of Cana. And as he's at that wedding, all of a sudden, the, the, the person who throws the party has run out of wine. And nothing ruins a good party like running out of wine. So at the urging of his mother, Jesus turns the water to wine. And at the end of this miracle, the author says in John 2.11, This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Notice the response of his disciples. When they saw this sign, when they saw Jesus turn the water into wine, the disciples believed in him. There's that theme of belief that comes up every time we see a sign, every time we see one of these miracles, somebody responds in belief. Well, in addition to this first sign, the turning of water into wine, John also records in John chapter 4 that Jesus heals a nobleman's son. In John chapter 5, Jesus heals a lame man. In John chapter 6, Jesus feeds 5,000 people with only two fish and five loaves. Also in John chapter 5, Jesus walks on the water. In John chapter 9, Jesus gives sight to a blind man. And then finally, in this seventh sign, in John chapter 11, Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. And at the end of all seven of these signs, the people respond by believing in Jesus. Jesus used these signs to show people who he was so that they could respond in belief to him. As it says in John 7.31, many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? Now verse 30 also says that these seven signs were done in the presence of eyewitnesses. Namely, he's talking about his disciples. And the author of this book is counted amongst those disciples who had seen what Jesus did. Take a look again at John chapter 21, verse 24. In John 21, 24, it says, This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things. And we know that his testimony is true. In this verse, John is referring to himself. This book is called The Gospel of John, because it is written by the Apostle John. And of the 12 apostles, John is the apostle who lived the longest. And even though this book was written over 50 years after the time of Jesus, the author here in chapter 21-24 is assuring us that he was an eyewitness to the events recorded in this book. This book is not second-hand knowledge. This book is eyewitness testimony. Therefore, it says in verse 24, we know his testimony is true. In other words, we can trust that what we read in the book of John actually happened. John reiterates the importance of his eyewitness testimony in another New Testament book that he wrote. In the epistle of 1 John, 1 John chapter 1, verse 1, the apostle John says this, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the life. This life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and we testify to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. What John is saying here in his epistle, he is saying, I was there. I heard Jesus speak. 
I, I saw him with my own eyes. I touched Jesus. And then I proclaimed that to you. You see, John is out asking us to take a blind leap of faith when we trust in Jesus. Belief is not based upon wishful thinking or just our hopes, but it's based upon evidence. It's based upon experiential knowledge. And John is saying, because I was there, because I saw Jesus, because I heard Jesus, because I touched Jesus, as you read through my gospel, you know that my testimony is true. So why should we believe? We should believe because of the signs that Jesus performed in front of the eyewitness testimony of his disciples and the apostle John, the author. John has written this book that we might believe in Jesus. And so now we know why we should believe because of the signs and the eyewitness testimony. But what exactly is belief? What is belief? What does it mean to believe? Well, the word belief used in the gospel of John is the Greek word pisteo. And this word has such a rich and deep meaning. In fact, I think it has a deeper meaning than even the English word belief. This biblical word belief has with it kind of a combination of three different English words. Belief, faith, and trust. To help us understand this biblical definition of the word belief, turn to John chapter 6. John chapter 6, and we're going to pick it up in verse 66. In John chapter 6, Jesus has just given a really difficult teaching. He said some really bizarre things in John chapter 6. He says things like, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in Christ. And after Jesus says this, people are just weirded out by that. And they start start leaving Jesus behind. And as when you get to verse 66, we see Jesus ask a question of his disciples. Take a look at John 6 verse 66. After this, many of his disciples turned back and they no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus turns to his disciples and he says, hey, are you going to leave me like all these other people left me? And Peter's response is profound, and it captures the very nature of this word belief. Peter says, where else am I going to go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed, and we have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Peter and the disciples' belief commits them to remain with Jesus, even when it's too difficult to do so. There are many people who say they believe in Jesus, but they fall away. When things get tough, they stop believing. In that case, they did not have true belief. You know, today there's a hesitancy for us to commit to any facts, to commit to any truth, because truth itself seems fluid and shifting. So we all hold on to our beliefs a little bit more tentatively. For many of us, when we say, I believe, what we're really saying is, well, I believe for now. I believe until something better comes along. I I believe until the truth tells me there's something different. And we no longer have personal attachment to our beliefs. But biblical belief requires commitment, even when it's not convenient or easy to believe. That doesn't mean we don't have any doubts. In fact, the Bible records many people who have doubts about their faith, but they still commit to believe. In Mark chapter 9, verse 22, there's a father who has a demon-possessed son, and he goes to Jesus, hoping that maybe Jesus can heal him, but he has his doubts. 
And as he brings his son to Jesus, he says in desperation, Jesus, I believe. Help my unbelief. Here's a man who has doubts, but he commits himself to the belief that Jesus can help his son even in midst of those doubts. Because biblical belief is a willingness to commit to the truth even if we have doubts. Biblical belief is a willingness to commit to the truth even if you have doubts. You see, biblical belief is more than just head knowledge. It's more than just knowing the truth. James 2.19 says, even the demons believe and they shudder. No, biblical belief is more than intellectual assent. Biblical belief requires that we take action. We have to act on our beliefs. Let me give you an illustration. Imagine that there's a person who is afraid of flying. Maybe you don't have to imagine that because maybe you're one of those people who, who is afraid of flying. But imagine you've got someone who's just scared to death of flying. And even though they're afraid of flying, they still decide to get on the airplane, even though they're just sure that that plane is going to crash. Now imagine that you have another person who's an aerospace engineer. And this aerospace engineer, he understands aerodynamics. He understands the physics of flight. He knows how airplanes work. But that aerospace engineer never actually steps foot on a plane. Let me ask you, which of these two people actually believes in the airplane? Which of these two are actually going to arrive at their destination? You see, the person who's scared of flying, the person who has doubts about that airplane, will actually be the one who arrives at his destination only because he got on the plane. But the aerospace engineer who can tell you everything about how an airplane works, why it can fly, why, why aerodynamics works the way it does, if he doesn't get on the plane, he's still stuck at home because he didn't believe in the plane. Biblical belief is not about what we know. Biblical belief is the action we take. Now, you've probably heard some people say that it doesn't really matter what you believe, as long as you believe in something. And that, my friends, is a lie. Belief in and of itself is completely worthless. Your belief is only as effective as the object of your belief. And in fact, the object of your belief is more important than the depth of your belief. A person who has a weak and shallow belief in something true will have more power than someone who deeply believes and strongly believes in something that is false. It is not the strength of our belief that matters. It is the object of our belief that matters. That's why when Peter says here that he believes that Jesus is the Holy One of God, his belief, even if it's a small belief, is in somebody who, is, who can carry the day. He has put his belief in a person, namely Jesus, the Holy One of God. John doesn't want us to just believe in belief. He wants us to believe in a person. He wants us to believe in Jesus. And that belief in Jesus has to be an exclusive belief. Peter says here, where else can we go? Where else are we going to go? You've got the words of eternal life. See, putting your faith in Jesus means that you're putting all of your life, all of your hope, all of your safety, all of security in him and in him alone. It's forsaking everything else. If you put your belief in Jesus, there can be no backup plan. There's no escape route. If Jesus is not the Christ, if he is not the Son of God, if there is no salvation through him, then I am doomed because there is no one else and nothing else in which I trust. It is Jesus and it is Jesus alone. But Peter says, where else would I go? 
you have the words of eternal life. So what is belief? Belief is putting your very life into the hands of Jesus and trusting him with your eternal destiny. John has written this book so that we might believe in Jesus. And so now we know why we should believe because of the signs and the eyewitness testimony. We know what it means to believe. It's putting our whole life in the hands of Jesus. But what exactly are we being asked to believe? What should we believe? And the answer is clearly stated in John 20, 31. But these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. The author wants us to believe two things about Jesus. He wants us to believe that Jesus is the Christ and that Jesus is the Son of God. So what does it mean when we say that Jesus is the Christ? Well, Christ is not Jesus' last name. Christ is a title. Christ is the Greek translation of the Hebrew word Messiah. And that means in English, the chosen one or the anointed one. Throughout the Old Testament, there were these prophecies and these promises given to the people of Israel that God would send the Messiah and that the Messiah would come and he would bring deliverance and restoration and forgiveness to not just Israel but to the entire world. So to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, we're saying that Jesus is the one chosen by God to fulfill all of the promises of the Old Testament. That Jesus is the one who has come to bring deliverance and restoration and a forgiveness to the whole world. Interestingly enough, Jesus doesn't use this title, Christ, of himself very often in the book of John. And I think that's because this title has political ramifications to it. The people of Israel assumed that the Christ would bring about a political and military revolution where Israel would throw off the oppression of the Roman Empire and would, the Christ would bring about freedom and liberation for his people. But when Jesus was on trial before the Roman governor Pilate, he states in John 8:36, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not of this world. You see, Christ has been chosen not to bring political deliverance, but to bring spiritual deliverance to our bondage to sin. And while Jesus doesn't broadcast his title to those in power, he does clearly announce that he is the Christ, but he announces it to the most unlikely of people. In fact, the very first time in the book of John where he proclaims himself to be the Christ is in John chapter 4, verse 25. In John chapter 4, Jesus is traveling through Samaria and he meets a woman who is an outcast, even among the hated Samaritan people. And in the midst of this conversation, in John 4.25, the woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming. He was called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Jesus has revealed himself to be the Christ. But he hasn't revealed himself to, to, as the Christ to Roman governors or to Jewish religious leaders, but to an outcast Samaritan woman. Because that's the kind of person that Jesus came to save. By saying that we believe that Jesus is the Christ, we're saying that he is the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament promises of God. But John wants us to believe that not only is Jesus the Christ, but he is also the Son of God. And, and John doesn't waste any time about getting to this point. He starts from the very beginning of the book telling us that. So turn to John chapter 1, verse 1. John chapter 1, verse 1. Because John 
at, right out of the gate, as soon as the book opens, he tells us that Jesus is the Son of God. Now, Pastor Steve is going to teach on this in depth next week. So we're not going to go into a depth this morning. I don't want to steal his thunder. And uh, you can just call this, this is a little bit of a teaser. This is a trailer for what Steve's going to say next week. But listen to what it says in John 1, starting in verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Skip down to verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Skip down to verse 18. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. In my opinion, this is one of the most beautiful and important chapters of the entire Bible. And I can't wait to hear what Pastor Steve says about it next week. But for this morning, let's just look real quickly at what it says. Verse 1. John shows us that before heaven and earth was made, Jesus already existed. He was the Word, and He was with God, and He was God. Then in verse 3, we discover that when the world was created, it was actually Jesus who did the creating. All things were made through Him, it says. And because Jesus made all things, verse 4 says that Jesus is the very source of life. Hold on to that. That's important. We're going to come back to the fact that Jesus is a source of life in a little bit. In verse 14, we learn that this word doesn't remain in heaven, but he becomes a human being. He became flesh and he dwelt among us. In the person of Jesus, God has become a human being and he's entered the world. And as a result of that, in verse 18, it says that while nobody has ever seen God, because God is spirit, if you have seen Jesus, you have seen God. John wastes no time in his book laying out the case that Jesus is the Son of God. But it's not just John who makes this claim. Jesus himself makes this claim as well. He says that he is God in the human flesh several times in the book of John. He makes that claim for us in John 5.17, in John 8.58, and again in John 10.24. And I want us to look specifically at his claim of divinity in John chapter 8, verse 56. So turn to John 8, verse 56. And this, we're picking this up in the middle of a conversation that Jesus is having with the religious leaders. So we're, we're coming in mid-context, so bear with me as we do that. But in John 8, 56, Jesus is speaking and he says this, Your father Abraham rejoiced that they would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So Jesus is having this debate with the religious leaders. And in the midst of that debate, he says that Abraham rejoiced to see the day that Jesus would come to earth. Verse 57, so the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old and you have seen Abraham? The, the Jews are indignant at this claim because how could Abraham have seen Jesus? Abraham lived 2,000 years prior to this point. He said, Jesus, you're not even 50 years old. What do you mean that Abraham rejoiced to see, you, see your day? You're talking absolute nonsense. Look at how Jesus responds in verse 58. Jesus said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. 
When Jesus says before Abraham was, I am, he's making a very bold claim. First, just on the surface, Jesus is saying that he existed before Abraham, a man who lived two millennia prior. But he's claiming something even more bold than that because when Jesus talks, he doesn't say before Abraham was, I was. He says before Abraham was, I am. Do you remember in Exodus chapter 3 when Moses encounters God at the burning bush? Moses asks God what his name is. And in Exodus 3.14, God says to Moses, I am who I am. Thus you will say to the people of Israel, I am has sent you. By saying, before Abraham was, I am, Jesus is using the special covenant name of God, and Jesus is claiming to be God himself. And his audience knew it because they picked up stones to throw at him. In their mind, Jesus had just committed the ultimate crime of blasphemy, and he deserved to die. This theme of Jesus saying, I am, comes up repeatedly in the Gospel of John. John records for us seven times that Jesus says, I am. He says in John 6.35, I am the bread of life. In John 8.12, he says, I am the light of the world. In John 10.7, he says, I am the gate for the sheep. In John 10.11, he says, I am the good shepherd. In John 11.25, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. In John 14.6, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And in John 15.1, he says, I am the true vine. And each of these seven times when Jesus says, I am, he is proclaiming himself to be God. So as we go through the book of John, we're going to see the author repeatedly build his case that Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus is the Son of God. The purpose of the book of John is to get us to believe in Jesus. And now we know why we should believe. We, we know what belief is and we know what it is that we should believe. And that leads us to our fourth and final questions. What do we gain by belief? If we choose to believe in Jesus, what is the result of that belief? And it's a one-word answer. Life. We gain life. John 20, 31 says that by believing, you may have life in his name. John doesn't write these things so that we would believe all the right facts. He doesn't write these things so that we would have proper theology. John is writing these things that we would have eternal life. What we gain by belief in Jesus is an eternal and an abundant life. We already saw this in John chapter 1. John 1, 4 says, in him was life and the life was the light of men because Jesus is the source of life. Only by believing in him can we find life. John 5.24 says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes me who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but he has passed from death to life. In John 10.10, Jesus says, I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. Jesus gives us an abundant life. And then in his most bold I am statement on record, in John 11, verse 25, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Yet everyone who, who lives and believes in me shall never die. And then to back up this bold claim, immediately after stating that he is the resurrection and the life, he performs his last and greatest sign and he raises Lazarus from the dead. Then in the, probably the most famous verse in the book of John, and maybe the most famous verse in the Bible, Jesus says in John 3.16, 
For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. Belief in Jesus as the Son of God means we can have eternal life. If you believe in Jesus, you will have life. You will be saved. If you do not believe in Jesus, you will perish. You will be condemned. What John is talking about when he's talking about belief is literally about life and death. What we think about Jesus is not merely an interesting intellectual question. What you believe about Jesus will determine your very eternal destiny. As Jesus says in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. In closing, I want you to turn back to John chapter 20. And we're going to finish by looking at John 20, starting in verse 24, just the verses immediately preceding what we've already read. And in these verses, we're going to see these four questions come together. We've asked, why should we believe? We should believe because of the signs Jesus performed before eyewitnesses. We've asked, what is belief? Belief is putting your very life into the hands of Jesus and trusting him with your eternal destiny. We've asked, what should we believe? We should believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And then finally, what do we gain by belief? Life both abundant and eternal. And we see these four questions come together in the climax of the book in John chapter 20, verse 24. In John 19, the chapter immediately preceding, Jesus has been crucified and buried. And now at the beginning of John chapter 20, we see Jesus is risen from the dead. He has shown himself first to Mary and then to Peter and then to John and then to all of the disciples. All of the disciples except for Thomas. Let's pick it up in John 20, verse 24. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. And put your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen yet have believed. Much is made of the doubts of Thomas, but this passage is not about Thomas's doubts, it's about his belief. Because remember, belief is not based upon wishful thinking or hope, it's based upon experiential knowledge. And here's a man who sees the risen Christ, who puts his hands into the very nail scars of Jesus, and he boldly proclaims, my Lord and my God. As an eyewitness to the resurrection, Thomas comes to the inevitable conclusion that Jesus is indeed God in human form. But look at what Jesus says next. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus is talking about those people who are reading the Gospel of John. He's talking about you 
and me. He, he's saying that we will be blessed if based upon what we read of the eyewitness testimony of Jesus in the book of John, if we come to believe, we will be blessed. Over the next several months, as we dig into the gospel of John on our Sunday morning services, my prayer for us is that we would come to realize the blessing that Jesus has promised us here in John 20, verse 29. As we encounter Jesus in the gospel of John together, I pray that we would put our belief in Jesus. And if you have never believed in Jesus before, as we go through the gospel of John, my prayer is that you would believe for the first time and that you would receive the eternal life that he offers. And if you have walked with Jesus for many, many years, my prayer is that you would deepen your belief and that you would realize the abundant life that he offers. And that together we might proclaim with Thomas, my Lord and my God, and in so doing full, find both life eternal and abundant. Let's pray.